0: Welcome. Today we will be speaking with Noah Rosenblatt, co founder of Urban Digs, a neutral, unbiased market intelligence platform for the New York City real estate industry. Additionally, Rosenblatt also hosts his own podcast, Talking Manhattan, if you'd like to check that out as well. Hope you enjoy the episode. I first just wanted to start asking how can new home buyers or renters properly value a living situation?
1: Um, So at the end of the day, when it comes to um, uh, evaluating whether or not a a, a fair market price, um, because we're not appraisers, right? So we can't say value we have to say things like opinion. Um, But the typical um, processes are going to be CMA reports, which is a comparable market analysis. Um, And what that is, is a area-based report on similar properties to the target property in question. So if you are a one bedroom, one bath rental in, in midtown Manhattan, again, my, my business is mostly New York City, so I'm just gonna go out of reference here. Um, a CMA report would look at other one bedrooms, one baths and similar buildings um, that are active, that are recently leased, um, that are recently rented, stuff like that, um, in the last six months you know, eight months, nine months. I mean, sometimes you have to go back a little bit to get a good chunk of data in that specific area. But since real estate is local, um, the CMA report is gonna basically focus on that specific area and just narrow out all of the um, listings that don't match the target property. So it's really just a um, set of averages, the CMA report. And it's, CMA report is not gonna be your, your most nuanced report. That's just the first step. Um, it's really a set of averages of what to expect for um, a rental price. Now on the sales side, it's a little trickier on the sales side um, because in my market of New York City, and and I'm sure to an extent this applies to other housing markets, um, every building, every vertical building in New York is its own little marketplace, right? Uh, If you step out of that building and you're trying to value a one bedroom condo to buy, right? What is this thing worth? Um, if you do that CMA report and you go outside the building and you're like, oh, it's like another one bedroom, one bath condos in the area. It's it's not really a good um, process to use because of the fact that the other units outside of the building are in in buildings that are completely different than the target. So it's not going to be an apples to apples comparison in, in dense urban vertical markets. And again, I think outside of New York in, in, to a degree, um, this probably works. Outside of the CMA report, you got a comps report. And what a comps report is, is it's basically what an appraisal does. And an appraisal, basically, or appraiser, basically is going to be brought in by the bank to validate the contract price for the bank, make sure that whatever the agreed upon price is, is is truly what it should be. And what that process is, is the appraiser is going to go out there and they're going to look at subject properties um, that closed, subject properties that closed that are most relevant. To the target property, and they go subject A, subject B, subject C, subject D. They use like five, you know, four, five, six, something like that is what they'll pick. And what they do is they take those subject comps that closed, so we actually have full price discovery on it. What somebody bid and sold for, so we can see what it is. And they say, all right, this subject property, subject A, it's different from the target property in the following ways: it's 100 square feet larger. It's on a higher floor, it's got a better view, it's more renovated, whatever it happens to be. And that appraiser is going to make adjustments, and make adjustments. And they say, all right, subject property A, target property here, let's make adjustments for all the differences. And what they're trying to doing, they're trying to put the subject property and the target property in parity, right? By making adjustments for all the differences. And they do that for subject A, subject B, subject C, subject D, and then they stop. Once they're like, all right, Um, I would have put another target property in there, but it's starting to really not be relevant to the target unit. These are the most four or three or five. And then they do that for all of them. And they put them into a little basket and they shake it up and they get an average or median. And that's what they use for an appraisal. So between the CMA, which looks at active and contract and closed and puts it all into a set of averages and the comps, which is a more um, nuanced artistic appraisal
0: way of looking at it, take those two together And it should give you information to guard your own valuation. You mentioned how the CMA sort of compares all these different rental properties in the same area. But what if someone's trying to look at two different areas and try to compare um, the quality of these apartments? And if it's a good living situation for the price in two different areas, how could someone do that?
1: Well, you know, uh, on a site like Urban Digs, you could do it. I mean, it's just a matter of access to data. Um, it's just that if you're looking in two different areas, you're going to find two different sets of conclusions. You know, um, I, I know in Manhattan. Just to give you an example: if I'm looking for a one-bedroom, one-bath in the Upper East Side, versus I'm looking for a one-bedroom, one-bath in Tribeca or Soho or the West Village or Greenwich Village or one of these downtown markets, um, it's going to be a completely different set of dynamics, cultures, supply, demand, balance. Um, one sector might be a a buyer's market, one sector may be more of a seller's market with tight inventory. Um, It's really the locality of real estate that kicks in. That's why when you do the area report for a specific target, you don't want to combine it or consolidate it with other areas and other reports. You want to keep these independent, mutually exclusive. Um, And then you got to make up your own mind and say, all right, well, you know what? For $2,000, I can get this in the Upper East Side. And for $2,000, I can get that in Chelsea or Tribeca. And they're two probably very different things.
0: What is the biggest min- misconception that you feel a lot of first-time home buyers or renters tend to have?
1: Oh, I, think, I think that first-time home buyers think that it's easy and not that expensive. Um, it's not. It's, it's, it's a difficult process. Um, there's a lot of elements. There's a lot of product knowledge needed. Um, if you're a first time buyer and you go through this process at the end of the entire process, you're going to look back on it and you can be like, okay, I know a lot more now than before I started this entire process. It's one of those types of things. You can't study it. You have to go through it. Um, I will tell you that there's landmines in the process. Um, there's, there's, there's things you should look out for. Um, you know, it's it's closing costs, for example. I think a lot of buyers completely underestimate closing costs. Um, I don't think, like, for example, to buy a property in New York City, you're probably looking at a condo, four, five, 6% at the end of the day in closing costs. I mean, if you're buying a million dollar condo, it could be $50,000. You know what I'm saying? I don't think, when you sell it, it could be another sixty to $70,000 on top of that. So you bank 50000 to buy, you bank $60,000, $70,000. To sell. It's like, wait, wait, it's $120,000 just in the transaction fees of buying and selling. A lot of buyers don't know that. Now, again, that's that's in my market. If you're buying a house in the suburbs, totally different, totally different set of circumstances, but there are still closing costs. Um, I also think buyers um, tend to um, overlook great value plays. Like I, I don't think they they look at a property the way a seasoned investor or seasoned buyer would. Um, A seasoned buyer is going to look at all the stuff that can't change. A seasoned buyer is going to look at um, buying a diamond in the rough, right? Really, like, let me just buy the the worst apartment that's in the best location in the best building, right? And this is being um, discounted because nobody wants to put the work in for this thing. And as a result, I'm getting it for a value. There's a value a arbitrage opportunity here to, um, for example, he, they're coming down in price by $300,000 and it's going to take me $200,000 to go do the renovation, but no one wants to do it. So they have to discount even more than that to get the deal done, um, to get the buyers. When I bought my place, um, it was a wreck. When I bought my house, I, I'm in Connecticut, actually. I was living in the city for, for 13 years and I'm now in Connecticut. And when I bought this place, it was, it was a divorce sale. It was, it was, the deck was half done. The paneling was missing on the sidings, but it was an amazing location. And it had something that no other properties had. It had privacy as a house like this. You can't change that. Like, this is what I'm talking about. And there must've been 200 people through this house. No one bid on it. No one bid on it. This house is like up on a hill. There's no neighbors here, but like I go downstairs, there's neighbors all down there. I don't hear anyone. Completely private Five minutes from the highways, five minutes from all the main streets. I don't hear any of it, right? This is the kind of thing that I think is hard to find. That's what buyers need to do. Go for the stuff you can't change.
0: How can people examine housing market trends through other economic metrics like inflation or growth? um, And how do those correlate with uh, the housing market so that people know if now is a good time to buy um, and potentially sell later because this stat Um, typically correlates with like an increase in the housing price.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we kind of were taught that inflation, you know, housing is a real great hedge against inflation. Um, It's just a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot more macro forces in that. I I don't see a lot of, I mean, look, you know, if inflation is low, and equities are doing great and the labor market's doing great and everything's risk on, you're going to have the stock, mar- uh, the stock market rise. You're probably going to have um, the housing market rise. And that's with inflation low. It's like, all right, so so now we have inflation high. Now we have inflation high. We have the Fed raising rates and housing's kind of going to get cooled. So there's a lot more things at play here, mostly driven by the Federal Reserve and, and all their quantitative easing and all their fiscal, well, I'm sorry, monetary stimulus, um, all of this stuff made everything uh, a little crazy mispriced risk right so when i look correlations look i think i think price tends to rise with volume local volume okay um, that can come for whatever reasons it could come during a downturn in certain sectors it could come because a business is coming into certain areas because some some regions are doing better but price tends to follow volume it's all about the bids when the bids start coming in and the liquidity goes into an area and and the volume starts getting in there, price tends to go and follow it, Um, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. Um, I'll tell you in New York City, um, when the market gets bad, off-market rises. There's a correlation. Like when the market goes down and there's stress hitting our market, sellers just go off-market. They just don't have an interest in selling. I don't want to sell down 10%. I'll take it off and I'll deal with the market later. You know? So it's, it's it's such a varying degree that I'm scared to say, oh, if inflation's on the rise, if interest rates are on the rise, that means real estate's going to be good. It's not
0: that easy. What is a lesson that you've learned through your time in real estate dealing with the housing market in New York City uh, that you think has been of a lot of value to you? And you mentioned how a lot of first-time buyers sort of go through this process and then they come back and they're like, oh, I forgot about this and this and this. So, yeah. That something like this that you have personally dealt with.
1: I will tell you that um, you know when when the clouds roll over, Max, and and the darkness comes into the housing markets and they start falling. What's really happening is the bid is dropping. If you think about like if you think about anatomy of a downturn, because I think the biggest lesson right here is to buy when there's blood on the streets. That's the lesson, right? If I'm a buyer, buy when it's down. I'm a contrarian, like buy low, sell high, but it doesn't work that because we're humans and humans have this um, psychological um, need for an urgency or lack of urgency. We have the reverse. Buyers tend to um, go with the herd and and they tend to buy more aggressively when we're near the top. Like why? When the markets are great and they're going up because there's certainty, they see what's going on for themselves. They're living it, they're in it. They can see, I can't find a house anymore. So they do it. Right when everyone else is doing it. If you go to an open house for a house and there's 65, 70 people there, max, are you gonna, and you're interested, are you gonna feel an urgency to buy that place? Versus if you go to a house with one person there, right, you're not gonna feel that urgency. Just an example of the psychological phenomenon of urgency. You're gonna go towards where, oh my God, 70 other people are interested in that house. Well, flip the script, right? The best buying opportunity in New York City was fall summer and fall 2020 when we were the darkest and down and all of the data showed that we stopped falling that was the craziest part all of the data said all right we're not going down the buyers are coming back the deal vibes coming back the bids are coming back and it was the clearest buy signal. but buyers didn't buy why don't buyers buy when it's dark and it's cloudy and the markets are down it's a very simple thing. They're scared. They're uncertain. They can't see the market. Usually the brokers are just looking for a deal. They're just saying, buy, buy, buy. They're not sending them data on what's really going on. So they're just confused. And when buyers are uncertain and scared and confused, and they think they're going to buy a depreciating asset and catch a falling knife, all right, you know what? I'll sit back. Even though it looks like now's a good time to buy, I'm sure my broker's telling me, I'll sit back and I'm going to wait. I'm going to pause. And then what happens is the recovery starts and they feel like they missed it and they don't want to chase it, right? So my advice is don't be scared. If I'm a buyer, like my first my first purchase was right after um, 9-11. Now, I didn't mean to do that. It's just what happened, I was looking for a house for a while in New York City. I didn't see much value. So I was learning product knowledge. I was saying, all right, let me just learn the market, follow the market, see which way it's going, learn products, what are these what could, what could $700,000 get? Kind of a thing. Um, and at the end of the day, when 9-11 happened, this market kind of went into a cease, cease file. Like everything stopped. There's no bids. Liquidity dried up. The bid dropped. The bid ask spread widened. And when that happens, sellers that have to sell have to hit a bid. Right? It's called a gap-down bid. Imagine a million-dollar seller trying to sell. Right. And three months ago, that bid was 975 or 980 or 960, but whatever, close. Now that bid's 920. Right. And during COVID times, that bid was 850. And sellers were hitting it because they were scared. That's the environment that buyers should be looking for and waiting for and targeting. But when it comes, they get scared and they pause and they wait for the recovery and they wait for other buyers to come in. It's it's a tough feeling to to fight and to kind of resist because everything inside you're saying no 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 it's falling it's falling it's falling and nobody can pick bottoms unless you're a productologist nobody can pick bottoms right sorry for that little joke over there um so no one's expecting to hit a bottom but if you are doing your product knowledge and you're seeing the market you're going to see it fall and you're going to see it come back you're going to see oh you know what there's not a lot of inventory coming on oh you know what a lot of the listings i'm following are starting to go into contract and you're going to feel it Right, And that's what I'm saying is the seasoned seasoned buyers that have been through this process, they've seen this before, and they know what to do, and they've made the mistakes, and now they know what to avoid, not to avoid, what to go after, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say as a buyer, focus on the contrarian buy. Buy when the market is down and out, when there's blood on the streets, and when you can potentially get a seller to hit a bid because they're the ones being fearful.
0: How much do you think the housing market has changed, let's say, past 20 years? How much will it change in the next 20 years? 20 years ago,
1: um, I mean, look, prices are significantly higher from 20 years ago. I mean, a lot of stuff is significantly higher from 20 years ago. I don't have a chart in front of me, um, but even with the correction we're undergoing now, I think we're still kind of well, well, well higher. Uh, In my opinion, um, this down cycle that we're going through right now is a Fed, Federal Reserve controlled demolition of inflation. Kind of, kind of, uh, 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 demand destruction. He's creating demand destruction, and they they can't have housing going up 50, 60, 70 percent in two, three years. It just you can't do that. Like you got to stop it. So they're going to cool inflation. They're going to they're going to slow this whole thing down. I don't think this is the big one. Like I don't know if you I don't know how old you were during the um, housing crisis in two thousand seven and two thousand eight. Um, I guess, I guess you could say start in 2006, but it really wasn't until seven, and eight. And then when the great financial crisis kicked in afterwards in 2009. Um, but I don't think this is going to be one of those kind of crises. Like, I, I think this down cycle is going to be a bit violent for for those sellers that have experienced sharp, unsustainable, parabolic runs. You got to understand New York City didn't do that. Like, so, so it's all different. Like New York City is probably right where we are before the pandemic. Like we are not up 50%. Boise, Idaho is up 65 or 70%. Boston's up 50%. Miami's up 60%. Well, Angeles, these, all these suburb markets are up crazy amounts. Those markets are now experiencing local forces that are quite negative, right? And they're seeing broken contracts and those guys are gonna have sharp corrections, right? Which is what the Fed wants. So I would not be surprised to see some markets that went up 60, 70%, the rug pull. Once that bid drops, it's like taking the steps. They say, when you go up, you're taking the steps up and then you get the elevator down. That's kind of how it works, slowly on the upside and then fast on the downside. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those markets correct 20, 25, 30% over the course of the next six, eight, nine months, probably closer to the six month as we get closer because the Fed's hiking rates. And I don't know, mortgage rates may not move that much unless the terminal Fed funds rate changes. Um, I don't want to go into that, but the Fed's going to hike rates substantially between now and, and the end of the year. And if, if expectations on that terminal Fed rate go higher than where it is now, just to explain, the Fed funds rate's at 1.5%, okay? 1.5%, they just raised it from 75 to 1.5. They expect it to go to 3.75 by the end of the year. That's a lot. So they're going to hike. 75 basis points, 75 basis. You're gonna hear it in a couple of weeks. And they're gonna keep doing it. But the market priced that in. The market, that's what's causing this shift. Is when that happened about a month and a half ago, two months ago with Jay Powell, the market's like, oh my God, he's really gonna do it. Like that's literally what happened. Nobody believed them. And I was like, oh, they're really gonna do it. So it's gonna be a notable correction, but I don't think this is the housing crash. I think there's a bigger credit cycle at play. And quite frankly, I see the Fed, after they're done with this hiking cycle at the end of the year or early next year, they're slated to lower rates down the road. So what does that tell you? Again, all this ties together macro-wise. If the Fed's going to hike rates for the next six, seven months and then lower rates in a year, that means that the Fed expects to overdo it on the upside. They expect to kill things too much and then they're going to have to re-stimulate and lower the rates down the road. So from a buyer's perspective, if you want to kind of time this thing or think about a good roadmap, right, right before the Fed reaches their terminal rate, before they say, all right, guys, that's enough, now we're going to lower it, that's when you buy. And at that point, the housing market is probably going to be at the mature end of this down cycle.
0: So do you think this federal fund rate is a big um... Sort of economic indicator of where the housing market is headed, um, and it's something that a lot of people should look for uh, when they're trying to buy a home and trying to time, like you said, uh, this moment when they can buy a home. In
1: my opinion, this is one of the biggest things. I- I'm looking at two things um, in my little toolkit of um, uh, toolkit of uh, uh, of leading indicators or whatever you want to call them. Uh, I'm looking at the Fed dot plot. Um, and I'm looking at credit spreads. The Fed dot plot is what I, I, I need to know because look, the Fed caused all this. The Fed caused all this. So so now they've got to take it back. They just, you know, they should have done this. They should have slowed down the gas pedal last year. They, let, they left it on way too long. So yeah, I'm tracking the people that caused this to see what they're going to do to stop it. And credit spreads. Um, I run something on Twitter called Alert Credit. That's me. It's a a tool that I track credit spreads with and I share every day for free to people what credit spreads are doing. And it's a sign of risk. It's a sign of risk. And as those credit spreads widen, that means it's a riskier environment. And those credit spreads have been widening. Um, If you look at it from the last six months, they've been widening. And it's telling me that we're in a kind of moderately elevated credit risk environment, which is kind of the state you're in when things are going through a little bit of a correction. So until I see um, a sustainable change in that, until I see the Fed and what their terminal rate is is reached and when they're going to change. um, I I think those two things are going to be a a, a great signal, a great market signal to use to potentially, if if you're someone out there that's trying to to time it, except I I would just say you could never time these things. You know, when it comes to real estate, forget time, go for the deal, go for the value. If you find something that, because it's not a ton of inventory, well, not in my market, maybe in other markets. Um, If you find something That meets every one of your needs, and you can get it for the price that makes sense. And you're like, all right, I was gonna buy in November, you know, because this guy from Urban Digs at the time, and you can get a good deal now. You do it. You know, you do it. Um, And one more thing I would say is, you know, there's a couple of things I'm seeing. From a negotiation perspective, um, sellers are starting to offer buyers in New York City to pay down their points instead of negotiating price. So for their mortgage, to get their mortgage rate lower, because this this is a whole mortgage rate thing, like mortgage rates went up and now it's more expensive for buyers. So prices are coming down. So for example, you got a $2 million seller in New York City. They could buy down for $60,000. They could buy down two points and get someone's interest rate from like five and a half percent to three and a half percent and for $60,000. And if they don't do that, they may have to lower their price by $200,000 to find a comparable buyer. That's really so. It's like, all right, so you tell the buyer, pay my price, and I will concession you two points and I will pay for that. And your mortgage rate now goes way down. And as a result, now this again, this is first time buyers would never even think of this. You know, so uh, if anything, a, a, a nuanced seasoned buyer would say, Hey, you know what? I want you, I'm going to negotiate. I'm putting in this bid. I want you to pay down a point and a half of my mortgage as well, and I'll do a deal with you. And if you can get that, man, you're golden. If you can't get that, consider a, 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 an adjustable rate mortgage, like a seven or 10 year arm, not a three or a five, it's too soon. But I would do a seven or 10 year arm just in case things don't work out. You have enough time because most people sell before seven or 10 years, right? Um, but the Fed is not going to hike rates to oblivion. They're going to, they're expected to lower rates in 20 by 2024. So if that's going to happen, don't lock yourself into a 30-year mortgage right now, right? Get yourself a seven, 10-year arm, get a much lower rate, and then potentially refinance down the road. Get your credit good, get everything good, like prepare yourself. Take the next year or two, get everything perfect. So when you do that refi, you know, everything looks good from a bank perspective
0: and you get a great rate. Then you can go into a 30-year fix when mortgage rates come back down a little bit down the road.